The following Bloodstream Media podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Speak to your healthcare provider about all medical and treatment decisions. What's up, Warriors? Welcome to the fourth episode of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast. We are here again, me and Dr. Mike. Hey, Dr. Z. How are you? Great. Dr. Mike, episode four of Sickle Cell Cheat Codes. I'm excited. I'm very excited, too. We're going to talk about what's happening, what's buzzing in social media with a special shout out to the ICER report, good and bad. We're going to hit our Warriors with a word of the day. We're going to have a special interview with a guest. And we'll finish up with you truly talking about A New Hope. Yeah, so, I, you know, over the holidays, I got Disney Plus, and my boys and I watched every Star Wars movie, one through nine. And now they call them episode one, episode two. Yeah. And episode four is A New Hope. And this is episode four of Cheat Codes, and I think we should call this A New Hope. We're talking about new drugs that can help, and we're talking about the hope trial for I love it. I love it. All right, guys, stay with us. All right, Warrior. So our next segment is a recurring segment we do on every episode where Amar tells us what is going on in social media. This is our what's happening now segment. I have to say, I know I'm not very savvy with the social media, but Amar is all over it. And a few weeks ago, he called me and he said, got it all figured out. I know what we got to do. TikTok. <laughs> yeah. So we what's, still what's going that. on on the Twitters and I, the, I'm gonna and get the you, TikToks? Before we get there, I'm going to get you on TikTok pretty soon we're gonna be doing medical education on tiktok all right <laughs> um well so dr mike i i want to talk today about a issue that is particularly important i think to the warriors and for physicians who care about the warriors and care for the warriors and of course their caregivers uh, a hot topic of discussion has been something called an icer report and it's been all over twitter and facebook and linkedin even so so icer is the institute for clinical and economic review and this is basically a group of of individuals who gets active in a disease space around the time when new drugs are coming to market and their job essentially is to determine the clinical and economic impact using models they try to predict what the clinical and economic impact will be of these new therapies. So they're, they're trying to figure out how good a medicine is, That's how much right. it's going to help, That's and right. then if it's worth how much it's going to cost. That's exactly it. This has been a really hot topic because, as you can imagine, there's very, very wide implications of what this report shows. And warriors who, as you guys know, have been just completely forgotten about for a century with no new therapies until really 2018, had only had hydroxyurea, uh, a drug that, that sure works, but was not really designed for sickle cell disease in mind, happened to work for it. It works really well. It works great, right? I but imagine ICER likes it because it's not very expensive. That's exactly it, right? So standard of care for sickle cell disease is hydroxyurea, right? And blood transfusions in specific cases. Nonetheless, adult mortality is climbing. Right, we are not doing great as far as sickle cell disease goes, and and to me that's because you can look at the biology of sickle cell disease, but really it's a biopsychosocial disease. If you are not addressing the psychosocial aspects and cost of having this disease, you really can't assess how new therapies are going to change the disease space. 
And I think you bring up a really good point when we talk about this. You always talk about when we look at spaces, for example, like cystic fibrosis or hemophilia, it's a different type of evaluation. Yeah, so I, you know, I get a little bit frustrated. I understand the role of a, a group like ICER. They're they're sort of a self-appointed group who goes through and, and really tries to do a good job of making sure that we're spending our healthcare dollars wisely. They're not infinite, so we have to decide what we can afford and what we can't afford. And so they want to pay for things that work and that make a big difference and, and help people, um, but aren't too expensive. So I, I appreciate where they're coming from. But there are some diseases where the treatments right now are very expensive. And so if you come in with a new treatment and it's not any better, but it's a little less expensive, then you can sell your new treatment at a very, very high price. Or if you come in with something that's a little better, you can charge an even higher price. Right. But diseases like sickle cell, where we don't have that existing good quality of care, expensive quality of care, they look at it and they say, well, this is adding a whole lot of cost. There's no cost here, so you can't take away any cost. So we're adding a whole lot of cost. That's exactly. Now, there are some things we can help if it keeps people out of the hospital. Sure. Um, if it prevents long-term complications like kidney sure. disease, then you can offset those costs. But those are things that happen really late. So when a new drug comes, it's very hard to tell if it's going to offset kidney disease or problems long-term. And so it's hard to evaluate these drugs up front. And I, right. I think that's very frustrating. Um, as a doctor, I never make uh, economic considerations. Sure. I, I think about what's best for my patient and I want my patient to have that thing. Even if it's super expensive and it's only going to help them a little bit. I want them to have that. They'll be better. That's my job as a doctor. Now I understand people like ICER, their job is to make sure that we're doing things in a cost effective way. Sure. And that's above my pay grade. I'm not, I don't even know the cost of things. I don't, you know, go into any great depth of evaluating them. But I think we need to educate ICER and groups like that so they understand where sickle cell patients are coming from, the value of these drugs, because not everything gets captured in clinical trials. For sure, for sure. And, you know, we we don't have um, sort of, you know, because sickle cell disease has historically been underfunded, we have never had the ability to really capture the complexity of the disease and how it affects your life over long periods of time. Yes, we've captured a lot of the biology, but we really haven't sort of as, as Dr. Uh, Charles Witten told us, the psychosocial aspect of sickle cell disease is particularly important in this group. We, we have not been able to capture that. So it's really frustrating to me because, you know, we, we know that this is a report now that basically has shown that none of the new drugs in sickle cell disease are cost effective and need to be sold at very, very low prices to be cost effective. And it's frustrating to me for a couple reasons. Number one, I feel like they haven't captured the complexity of the sickle cell patient in the sense of their analysis is very focused on pain. Number two, I don't think that they've certainly captured the indirect costs to sickle cell disease patient lives and family units that have a family member with sickle cell disease. Finally, I feel like... Um, you know, the new drugs that we have came to us through accelerated approval, which means that they don't go through the same rigor or the same intensity as far as um, their, their clinical trial to get to approval. 
we're approving this because this is shown benefit on some endpoint, sometimes a surrogate endpoint. The benefit is, is conferred in a rare disease, in an orphan disease that has no other options or few options. Right. There's a high unmet need. Exactly. There's a lot of issues that aren't addressed by anything so they give a drug that might help those things that's exactly it fast approval because they want people to have access to them that's right so when you go through that fast approval i think then it's unfair to say this drug is not cost effective because you haven't shown appropriate effect of this drug right you haven't seen the long-term effect you haven't shown us that 15 years down the road right it improves kidney disease because nobody's been on it for 15 years and we haven't been able to study that. Exactly. So I'm a little frustrated that this is going to be just a roadblock for our patients. I think that we got to a point in November of 2019, the quote unquote, November to remember with two drug approvals, 10 days apart, we got to, I mean, sort of almost like an apex of sickle cell therapeutics. And I feel like these guys are just going to send us backwards 20, 30 years with this, because what's going to happen is insurance companies will start using this to say, hmm, we probably don't want to pay for these medications. And that, that, that frustrates me. Yeah. It's given us a big job to do educating and in insurance and payers. And, and I think just to go back to what you brought up about you know, cystic fibrosis or spinal muscular atrophy or Gaucher disease where yeah. they have these really, really expensive therapies sure. that cost multiples of what these new sickle cell drugs cost. And some of them are not a big improvement over the last version, but because the last version was also very expensive, they can charge that. Exactly. And then they say this, even though it is a big improvement from having nothing, there's no expensive drug there. So you're comparing it to something like hydroxyurea, which might cost $1,700 a year, and it just looks a lot more expensive. So I think we need to educate the payers that there needs to be equity here. I mean, we want our brothers and sisters with other orphan diseases like cystic fibrosis and gauchets and spinal muscular atrophy and hemophilia to have access to their drugs, but sickle cell patients need to have access to their drugs too. Absolutely. So I want to also point out that the, the report that went out is in draft form still. The public has an opportunity to make comments on that report for, I think, about a month more. So I think we really have to sort of boot and rally and and get other providers excited about this. Certainly the advocacy groups like SCDAA, you know, Ashley Valentine from Six Cells has been all over this. I think it's going to take a a concerted effort. I think um, as long as we amplify our voice by sticking together, we can make a real effect on this. I think that's really important. And I I think, you know, none of these drugs are cures. They're not for everybody. But I would like it to be that you and your doctor can decide if it's right for you, not that you're being limited when when you and your doctor think you should have it because the payers won't pay for it. Because not knowing you, not knowing your circumstance, not knowing how this might benefit you. Exactly. They're saying it's not cost effective. Exactly. All right, Warriors, we are back with my favorite segment, our Warrior Word of the Day. Dr. Mike, I've got a really, really good one for you today, and it totally fits with what we're going to be talking about. All right. So this is a term that we use pretty frequently. It's a, it's a term that we use in relation to red blood cells, especially when we talk about red blood cells in the context of sickle cell disease. And it's become more of an important term with these new drugs that have come out in, in sort of the last couple of years, particularly one of them, Voxelator. The word of the day, the warrior word of the day, is hemolysis. Hemolysis, that's a good one. 
So hemolysis, that's a big word. Uh, we could break it down. Hemo means blood or coming from the red blood cells. Uh-huh. And lysis, meaning to break down. So the red blood cells are breaking down. Okay. And so all red blood cells break down, but red blood cells usually live about 100 days. And if they're breaking down faster than that, then we would say you have hemolysis. Okay. And the hemolysis could happen in your blood vessels. And then we would say it's intravascular or in your blood vessel hemolysis. And that can cause a lot of problems. Or it could happen outside your blood vessels, like in your spleen or in some of your lymph cells. And that would be called extravascular hemolysis. And when you have this hemolysis, the red blood cells are turning over faster. They're not living as long. So your body has to make more red blood cells. And if it can't keep up, then your hemoglobin gets low. You don't have enough hemoglobin and you're anemic. And then that can cause problems for delivering oxygen. Another problem when you have hemolysis, especially like in sickle cell, when you have the intravascular hemolysis in the blood vessels, is you have the things that are supposed to be inside the red blood cells leaking out into the plasma where they're not supposed to be okay some of these things can cause damage so you can have the heme molecules that have iron that are supposed to be inside the red blood cells now they're outside the red blood cells and And when you say heme molecule that's like do you mean hemoglobin or what do you mean yeah so part of the hemoglobin the part called heme is a little bit of protein but it's the protein part that holds the iron okay and iron you can imagine when it's out free in your bloodstream it's like you got rust floating around in there it gets oxidized and it it damages other things so it can cause damage to the blood vessels it can interfere with something called nitric oxide that helps keep the blood vessels from being sticky it helps them be loose and and open so that the blood can flow through well and when the heme interferes with that then you start to have uh, blood vessels get sticky and the blood flows uh, more slowly and you you get sickling and and cells sticking to the blood vessels. And there are some other things that aren't necessarily causing problems, but they let us know that you're having hemolysis. Yeah, we look for those all the time. Yeah, so if you have uh, hemolysis, an enzyme inside the blood cells called LDH gets out into the blood and we can measure that. Or you have heme out in the blood that gets turned into bilirubin. So your bilirubin gets higher and you might notice that you get a little jaundiced or yellow. And we do see that often. We do. So we we can measure that bilirubin and that LDH. And if you're having more hemolysis, then we'll see that going up. And there are a lot of things that can cause hemolysis. So in sickle cell, it's because of the polymers forming and the cells getting deformed and getting stuck and then they break open. But there are other things that could happen. For instance, if you get blood transfusions, you might make antibodies against the red blood cells. And those antibodies will break the red blood cells and cause hemolysis. And that's a big problem for a lot of our warriors. That is. um, We see that one a lot. Hemolysis is a big topic. And people who have more hemolysis tend to have more problems in sickle cell. It can lead to lung problems like pulmonary hypertension and other complications of sickle cell disease. So if we see that people are having a lot of hemolysis, that might be a sign that you need to intervene more. We haven't had a lot of tools to stop that hemolysis. We can give blood transfusions and the transfused blood cells don't hemolyze. Or we could give hydroxyurea, which increases your fetal hemoglobin and slows down the hemolysis. Or as we talked about, there's a new drug called oxbrita that can interfere with the polymerization and and prevent some hemolysis. Yeah, we're telling a little bit of a different story in 2020, aren't we? It's nice to have some tools. Yeah, it's really, really nice. You know, I often think of hemolysis like donuts, donut shaped, and, and the stuff inside of them like jelly. And when they break open, all this sticky jelly comes out, and that causes a big mess. I like that. 
Just that's just my fat boy way of uh, thinking about <laughs> hemolysis. You're making me hungry. All right, guys, that's our warrior word of the day: hemolysis. Cheat codes, listeners. Producer Patrick here. Doctors Mike and Amar were fortunate recently to set up a call with Global Blood Therapeutics, or GBT, Chief Executive Officer Ted Love. GBT is the maker of Oxbrita, a new drug indicated by the FDA in November of 2019 for the treatment of sickle cell disease. This is kind of a big deal, but I'll let the experts tell you why in just a minute. Reminder to subscribe to Cheat Codes wherever you listen to podcasts, leave Cheat Codes a review in the Apple Store, and tell your friends. Word of mouth is our greatest PR. Enjoy the interview. All right. So with us today, we're very lucky to have Dr. Ted Love, who is the um, CEO of Global Blood Therapeutics. Dr. Love, thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate it. Welcome to Cheat Codes. It's a pleasure to be here. So we have a lot of things that we want to sort of talk to you about. And the first thing is, is really we sort of just want to hear about how you first sort of got involved with um, Global Blood Therapeutics. Tell us a little bit of the story of how Ted Love uh, ended up CEO of Global Blood Therapeutics. Well, it is an interesting story. I, um, Charles Holmesy is a cardiologist that I knew back when I was at Harvard back in, uh, the, back in the 80s. And we actually had contiguous labs uh, together uh, at, the, at, at the Mass General. Um, I had actually uh, come to Genentech initially in biotech and had been involved in a number of companies and had actually retired and had decided that I would not work full-time anymore. And Charles was starting this company focused on sickle cell, which he knew because of my African-American heritage that I would likely be interested in. And sure. he was very interested in me because he knew I had really developed a strong background in drug development and getting drugs approved. I actually initially turned them down, believe it or not, but I did ultimately agree to be on the board. And thanks to Charles' persistence, I ultimately realized I really had to do this. And, and I have not looked back. It's been a tremendous tremendous experience to be involved in something that could be so transformative for sickle cell patients. Absolutely. No, that, that's, that's, that's wonderful. I mean, we uh, certainly from our end on the clinician side, we are so happy that you guys dedicated yourself to this mission and this product um, in the way that you have, um, in a way that really empowers the community as well with all of the, your efforts to um, help with advocacy and awareness. Um, you know, as we do, you know, of course, this episode is dedicated to Voxelator. Um, tell us a little bit about Voxelator. Tell us a little bit about the story of Voxelator being developed and how you got it to um, where it is today. FDA approved as of November 25th, 2019. Um, how, how did we get to that point with Vox? Voxelator is a very interesting compound. It's now, of course, uh, known as Oxprida. But I remember when I became CEO, the first thing I told potential investors that would help us fund this was that this will work if it's well tolerated. Uh, and the reason I was so confident it would work is because sickle cell disease at its most fundamental level is the hemoglobin sticking to each other, hemoglobin molecules aggregating into rods. We call that polymerization. And voxelator oxprida actually directly inhibits that. And we knew it inhibited with the best possible science, all the way from simple experiments uh, in the laboratory that were very rigorous to animal experience uh, in transgenic mites. We knew this 
was a powerful polymerization inhibitor. And that's the fundamental basis of the disease. So I essentially knew this would work if it was well tolerated. So it was extremely gratifying once we got into humans and we began to see this was indeed a very well tolerated medicine. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, you know, of course, we um, have talked in depth about the HOPE trial and uh, the findings of the HOPE trial. Um, with, with your sort of clinical expertise and, and your training as, as a physician, a cardiologist, if you were talking about voxelator in a patient room with a patient, how how would you sort of um, how would you describe oxbrita to them? Um, how would that conversation look if it was coming from you? Well, I think it would be uh, very similar to what the FDA actually approved the drug for. The label directly says that this drug is a polymerization inhibitor for all patients with sickle cell disease 12 and older. Now, we expect that lower boundary of age to actually go away when we submit the appropriate data in younger individuals down to nine years old. But the FDA label actually says that this is fundamentally indicated to treat the disease. And every person with sickle cell disease is, in fact, polymerizing, and the polymerization is really fundamentally what's driving their disease. So I would say to the patient, much like HIV, HIV therapy can make your disease effectively go away. And we think that adequate polymerization inhibition is likely to be very, very effective, analogous to what we're doing in HIV. And we've seen that in our patients, by the way. We've seen patients go on this drug and you really can't see evidence of sickle cell disease anymore. The sickle cells go away. The hemoglobin uh, in some patients actually goes into the normal range. The reticulocyte count, the evidence of red cells being destroyed, bilirubin, all those things can normalize. So we may not be able to do that in every patient, and that may be something that we can work on through dose optimization, which we're already exploring. But this is a very fundamental treatment that's aimed at the molecular base of the disease. And this is how you powerfully augment diseases. And I think the thing that's so amazing here is many times as we make medicines, these powerful medicines have significant side effects. It's really a gem to have a medicine which is so powerful, direct at the fundamental nature of the disease, that's very well tolerated. Absolutely. For sure. So to do this on a scale of phase three trials and FDA approval, it's a huge operation. Um, but do you get a chance to talk one-on-one -on -one with, with people who are affected with sickle cell on the drug and get that kind of personal experience? I, I do. And in fact, that has been, quite frankly, one of the most gratifying experiences. The first trial we did actually was done in London. There are a very significant number of people of Nigerian descent in London, and it made it very convenient for us to do the study in essentially one hospital. And at the end of it, being a small company, we thought it'd be great to have a get-together for all of the families, all of the investigators and the study coordinators in London. So we actually scheduled this really to celebrate. And that ended up being a cry fest because many of the patients began to talk about their life before they tried the drug and what had happened while they were on the drug. And we didn't plan it this way, but, but that was my first clue that patients feel this drug, they feel it very quickly, and, and if they discontinue the drug, they can feel that they're returning to the sick state that they were in before they started the drug. So 
That was a great meeting because it was an opportunity for me to see face-to-face what we're doing and and how we can impact the lives of patients. We uh, are very excited to have medications now to treat sickle cell. We we went so many years without, um, but it becomes a big challenge um, to get the medicines to the patients um, on a lot of levels. Some of it's awareness, some of it's access. And we've been excited with um, GBT's efforts um, to help with that. Could you speak a little to that and and what GBT's plans are for uh, awareness, access, advocacy? You were absolutely right. Uh, Medicine is useless unless you can actually get it into the hands of prescribers and into the medicine cabinets of the patients who need it. So we've gone about this in a way that really starts with the patient. Even before we put Oxprida into the first human studies, we were already going to patient advocacy meetings. We were already supporting patient advocacy groups. We were already starting to interact with social media. And we did this because we really have always felt that the patient is the number one thing. And we want to get everything about everything that we do right for the patient. So we wanted our trials to have input from the patient. We wanted to understand the community that we'd ultimately be interacting with if the drug got approved as it has. So we've been incredibly active in the patient community. There's still more work to be done, but we think being very forward-facing, very interacting with the patient community. We've also done the same with the thought leader community, and obviously we've collaborated very, very carefully and very strongly with the Food and Drug Administration. It took all of these groups moving in unison to do what we did. I mean, we got this drug approved in an extraordinary short amount of time, and the evidence that it's working is quite compelling, and that's why got the accelerated approval, and that's why we have such a clear label that indicates the use of the drug so broadly. So we've done, I think, an admirable job, but we also did it in an extraordinary amount of time, and that was due to the collaboration with all the groups. So now that the drug is approved, we need to interact with patient advocacy groups. We obviously need to interact with various other groups. It's been very clear to us as the providers, and I think the patients definitely are feeling the the way that you guys have involved yourself um, at the ground level with the patients and the community um, and have really empowered them. You know, the final question, Dr. Love, that I sort of wanted to to push your way was um, relating to sort of where the burden of this disease actually really is, which is um, not in the United States. Um, You know, countries like Africa, I mean, sorry, the the entire sub-Saharan African continent uh, continent and India, Pakistan, the Middle East. Um, Can you speak a little bit towards uh, GBT's efforts relating to to sort of those countries? It's interesting you'd ask. Uh, One of the questions I asked uh, the board of directors when they were trying to get me to come out of retirement to be the CEO is I asked them if there was a commitment to make this drug available globally, where the burden of the disease, as you point out, is most prevalent. So we've had a board from its inception that's committed to this. We've had a CEO that's committed to making the drug available globally, and we've been working on this already. We obviously need to make sure that we keep the company funded, and that's going to be in geographies of the world where you know the GDP of the country is higher. But we've already started efforts. We have a We have two people in our company that essentially work full-time on many of the things that need to happen to make this possible. 
I was actually in D.C. last Friday with a meeting between our HHS, the World Bank, uh, WHO, UNICEF. It was a group of individuals who are focused on eradicating the burden of sickle cell disease on a global basis. So we are fully into this and it, it will happen. Our drugs are going to be available globally. Amazing. That's uh, that's wonderful to hear. Dr. Love, that um, that really concludes sort of um, our interview with you. We are so thankful um, that you are in this space doing the work that you are doing and that you took time to have this conversation with us today. Well, thank you all for your focus on sickle cell disease. It's, it's really our collective efforts that are going to be required to change this and at the rate that we want to change it and the magnitude that we want to change it. We want to make sickle cell disease an easily well-managed chronic disease like we've done in HIV and like we've done in many other diseases. Absolutely. Very well said. Thank you so much, Dr. Love. All right, Warriors. Today we've got a special, a special article that I think that warrants extra attention. And we're lucky to have Dr. Mike, who actually is an author on the report that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine just last year. So, Dr. Mike, without further ado... Can you tell us a little bit about A New Hope? Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to. Um, so this study is uh, called a phase three randomized trial of voxelator in sickle cell disease. Okay. And it was published in August of 2019. And the primary author is Dr. Elliot Vachinsky, who is an absolute legend in, in sickle really cell is. disease. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so many great trials. And it's a bit of an exaggeration to say I'm an author, although I'm happy if you put my name in PubMed, this shows up. I'm just one <laughs> of the counts. whole trial investigators. I'll, <laughs> I'll count it for sure. Um, so uh, th this HOPE trial was a multi-center, so it was done at a lot of different hospitals um, throughout the world, really. Phase three, so this is uh, when, when you're getting toward FDA approval, you do a big trial to really um, try to prove that your drug works. Um, double blind. So this means that um, there's a placebo and a drug and neither the doctor or the patient knows if they're getting the placebo or the drug. So the doctor's blinded and the, the physician's blinded. And we do that so that uh, people don't think they're feeling better because they know they're on the drug. If they do that, they would also do that in the placebo so we can see the difference. Although here, the primary endpoint of the study was to see what happened to hemoglobin. And it's a little hard to think how you can will your hemoglobin to be higher. But still, yeah. double blinding is a good practice. Sure. And it's randomized. So that means uh, we do something like flip a coin to decide uh, whether you get the placebo or the drug. And, th and the goal there is to sort of average out all the other things that you don't know to, to control for. And in this trial, they looked at two different doses of voxelator, 1,500 milligrams and, and 900 milligrams. Um, so about a third of the patients got 1,500 milligrams every day. About a third got 900 and okay. about a third got the placebo. Yeah. And they used in this what we call a proxy endpoint. So um, that's where, you know, we want drugs that make us live longer sure. or that cure our disease. Sure. So in this study, they looked at how much the drug raised people's hemoglobins. Okay. And they said if it raises it by one gram per deciliter, that's meaningful. So they looked at how many people had that one gram rise over a 24-week period. Okay. Just to take a step back, what is voxelator? So voxelator is uh, now called oxbrita 
and I'll I'll use that name from now on. Sure. It's Brita. Yeah. Um, that's the the trade name. So every drug gets sort of a generic name and a trade name. And Oxbrita is a, a small molecule. It's a pill you can take. Mm-hmm. And it gets into your bloodstream at, at pretty high levels. So we have a tremendous amount of hemoglobin in our blood. And so if you're going to target hemoglobin, you need to have a tremendous amount of drug. And a lot of drugs you can't tolerate at very high levels. But this one uh, is, is very well tolerated at high levels. Okay. So you take the medicine and it, it gets into your uh, blood cells and sticks to uh, part of the hemoglobin, the alpha subunits. And it makes the hemoglobin hold on to oxygen a little bit tighter. Okay. So our hemoglobin is designed to bind oxygen, but it also needs to drop off the oxygen. That's an important function. Yeah. It's got to be able to pick it up. It's got to be able to drop it off. And the way it does that is when the oxygen level is really high, like you're a red blood cell and you're sitting in a lung and there's a ton of oxygen there, it binds oxygen. So when the level's high, it binds it. And then as the level goes down, so it gets out to a muscle cell or a bone cell or kidney cell out in the tissue and the oxygen level there is low, it drops off the oxygen. Okay. Yeah. And so you could draw a, a graph where you have the amount of oxygen stuck to the hemoglobin and the amount of oxygen around. Okay. And if you got to a high level of oxygen, like the lung, 100% of the hemoglobins will have oxygen on them. That makes sense. And if you get to a low level, like out in the tissue, 100% of them will drop off the oxygen. Okay. And so in, in between, you know, there's there's a steady increase in oxygen bound to hemoglobin the higher the oxygen level is. Sure. And so we call that the oxygen dissociation curve. So the oxygen comes off of the hemoglobin or dissociates yep. at different levels of oxygen. So what oxbrita does is when it's on the hemoglobin, the hemoglobin holds onto the oxygen a little bit tighter. So it binds to oxygen even when the level is a little bit lower. Okay. And it doesn't drop it off until the level gets really low. And so when the hemoglobin is is bound to oxygen, it's in one shape. And when it drops off the oxygen, it takes on a new shape. Okay. And in the new shape, when the, when there's no oxygen, that's when the sickle cell mutation starts to cause a problem. Sure. So you have the exposure of, of the valine, the mutant amino acid in uh, people with sickle cell. Yeah. That valine sticks to the next hemoglobin. Right. And then the next one has a valine that's exposed and it sticks to the next one. So it forms a polymer, a rod of all of these hemoglobins. They start stacking. Right. But if you have some of them that have this oxbrita stuck to it and they're still holding on to the oxygen, they don't have that valine sticking out yet. And so they get in the way of that rod forming. And we have something called a delay time, which is the time between when the hemoglobin drops off the oxygen and when you have the, the sickle. Yeah. So once the oxygen gets dropped off, the hemoglobin start to line up, but it might take a half a second. It might take a second. It might take two seconds. In that time, the red blood cell can get through the tiny blood vessel where it would get stuck back to the bigger veins and get back up to the lungs, get oxygen on the sickle. So if you can make that time between when it drops off oxygen in the time when the cell gets through the blood vessel, if you can make that time a little bit longer for the sickles to form, then it won't get stuck. Got it. It'll make it through that blood vessel. And so that's what this medicine does. It prevents the polymerization a little bit, prevents those rods from forming, gives it a little bit more time to get back. So in, in this study, they wanted to look at whether 
voxelator would raise the hemoglobin in people with sickle cell. And then they want to assume that because it did raise the hemoglobin that you get these good outcomes. So they use that raise in hemoglobin as the proxy endpoint. And so they they had 449 patients come in who were interested in the study. Some of them didn't meet all of the what are called eligibility criteria. For this study, you had to be at least 12 years old. You had to have sickle cell disease. Because the, the drug raises the hemoglobin, they wanted people whose hemoglobin was and too high. You, you couldn't have a hemoglobin above 10.5. They also cut people out who were below 5.5 and also people who had things going on that might affect their hemoglobin during the study. Transfusions. Right. So if you had gotten a recent transfusion, you couldn't be on the study. If you were on hydroxyurea, that was okay. You could be on the study, but you had to have been on it for at least a few months at a steady dose. Okay. So they uh, went through all of those criteria and found 274 people sure. who fit the criteria, and then they randomized them. So sure. 90 were randomized to get the high-dose Voxelatorin, 1,500 milligrams a day. 92 were to get the intermediate dose, the 900 milligrams a day, yep. and 92 to get the placebo. So all, all of those people were in, included in the analysis. Now, who, who were these people? They ranged in age from 12 to 64. They were men. They were women. Almost 20% were teenagers. They were mostly African-American, Sure. Um, although there were some other ethnic groups, including... Was uh, it only SS and S-beta-0 patients? No, so they had uh, SS... Um, S beta zero, they had a few patients with S beta thalassemia plus, um, SC and a few with other, other rare variants. So I I think that's really important because drugs usually get approved for who we've tested them in. Right. And some of our drugs, like for instance, hydroxyurea is not widely used in people with SC or S beta plus. So having drugs that are tested in those groups is, is valuable. To be on the study, you had to have had at least one pain episode in the last year that required medical attention. And about 40% of patients had one. The other 60% had, uh, two to 10, a range of of pain episodes, but uh, you had to have at least one. About two thirds of the patients were on hydroxyurea. So they looked at that primary endpoint at 24 weeks. They checked the people's hemoglobin and compared it to where they were before they started the medicine. Sure. And so you'd expect... If you didn't do anything, you'd be about even. So that would be zero change. Yeah. Um, of course, some people, their hemoglobin might be a little lower than it was before because they were sick or right. because they were dehydrated the first time or all the little variables that can make minor changes. And some people might have been a little higher for the same reasons. And it looked like they measured the hemoglobin, although that endpoint was at 24 weeks. They measured it about you know every two weeks at first and then every four and eight weeks later in the study. And at every time point, you see this rise, including at two weeks. So it works pretty quickly to get the hemoglobin up. You see that result at, at two weeks. We also looked at safety. When you're on a clinical trial, Anything that happens is called an adverse event. So if you're uh, not on a clinical trial and you have a headache, you have a headache. Yeah. If you're on a clinical trial and you have a headache, that's an adverse event. Okay. And we break those down into grades. So if you have a headache and you don't do anything about it, that's a grade one. Yep. If you take a Tylenol, that's a grade two. Two, yeah. If you have to go to the emergency room and get hospitalized, that's a grade three. Okay. And if you die from your headache, that's a grade four. Okay. Um, 
so that they they broke those down the incidence of adverse events and severe adverse events grade three and four were really similar between the placebo and the, the high dose voxelator groups meaning that the drug didn't have any um extra bad things happen compared to the people who weren't getting the drug. right on, okay. on the study we didn't see any big okay big signal that you would think oh the drug is causing this um so for instance uh 26 percent of the people on voxelator had headaches during the study compared to 22 percent who were getting the placebo okay so very um so there there was no big safety signal um things seemed actually very similar between the voxelator and the placebo okay so based on that phase three randomized trial that met its endpoint and showed that voxelator does significantly increase hemoglobin voxelator or oxbrita was approved by the fda and is now available using the the high dose 1500 milligrams per day so i i think this is a good time to point out that you know throughout all of this podcast we're trying to provide you information and education but i'm not your doctor or or maybe i am but if i am come talk to me personally (laughs) um and if i'm not talk to your doctor discuss these things this is not medical advice it's really just meant to be information yeah that's absolutely that's absolutely correct but with that being said now i mean when i think of what one gram of hemoglobin is right practically in an adult patient that's a bag of blood that's like walking around with an extra bag of blood in your in your blood in your bloodstream it's really important to remember that this drug is attacking the sickle cell pathway at step one yeah i think that's a good point i also sort of don't care i you know i i think the first step is the the hemoglobin forming these polymers i like that you target that because everything else happens downstream of that so if you stop that everything else doesn't happen right so in that way i really like that that is the target here on the other hand it doesn't really matter how clever something is or uh, what the target is it just matters if it works has to do the job yeah, yeah. so so I, I think you know we have some data now to show that targeting that upstream thing raises your hemoglobin by a gram and I, I think you know more more than theoretical things or more than uh, you know what the target is I think that's something you can hang your head on so we've had a lot of discussion about ICER and approval of medications and things of that sort. So we, we discussed on this episode ICER a little bit, and we talked a little bit about outcomes data or long-term effects of medications. What potential or what types of studies do you think can come out of this type of uh, new drug approval? What, what things are going to be looked at? What's the future here? Yeah, no, I, I think that's a good uh, point, and it's an important one. So this drug got fast-tracked by FDA. They said, we don't have a lot of good drugs for sickle cell. People are dying at a young age. They're having a lot of complications. This could help, so we're, we're going to let you get it through quickly based on this this proxy endpoint or the surrogate endpoint. And I, I'm glad they did that. But because of that, we don't know long-term you know, we want to extrapolate that raising your hemoglobin is going to help these long-term things. Um, but we don't know 100% that that's true. So we do need to do some of those studies. And some of them take a really long time. And I, th- I think it's really important that we do these outcomes research studies and that we follow people after the drugs launched and really capture data about what's going on. Because 
a lot of times we'll put somebody on a medicine and maybe they have a good response and they say, this is great. I, you know, I used to have a lot of sure. pain episodes and now I don't, or maybe they have the opposite. Sure. They say, you know, I don't think I'm doing any better on this drug, or maybe they even feel like they're doing worse. You know, I, you don't want to discount their experience. You know, some things work well for some people and other things don't, but it, it's hard to understand what's going on from one person. But I think when you get a large group of people and you can look at, you know, here are the people who are on this drug and here are the people who aren't. And what is the rate of kidney disease at 10 right. years? Right. Um, what is the rate of stroke at 10 years? Are, are people living longer? Do people need less blood transfusions right. and have less iron overload? These are all really important for things. Sure. For sure. And we won't know them for a while and we won't know yeah. them unless we track them. So right. I, I think it's going to be really important after these drugs launch that we're watching those things that Absolutely we're looking agreed. for those Absolutely uh, important outcomes because yeah. you know raising your hemoglobin a gram is promising but it's got to fulfill that promise it's right. got to improve outcomes right that's very similar to what happened with hydroxyurea right where now we're seeing the effects of instituting hydroxyurea the way we have Right. And, and I think this is really a challenge and this gets back to the kind of things that ICER is trying to do. So I, I think if you looked at hydroxyurea 25 years ago before baby hug, before long-term studies, you can't make a lot of outcomes That's claims. Right. Now we're starting to have some of that data and you can say it really works. There are cautionary tales the other way where, you know, you had a drug that maybe lowered your cholesterol and you think that should help prevent heart attacks but it didn't, it didn't. that's right um so i i think we really do need to track these things you know in an absence when there's no evidence one way or the other i don't think that means it's not true i mean the hydroxyurea example is a case where it was true it just means we don't know and i think when we don't know we have to use our best logic we have to consider on a case-by-case -case basis what's best for each patient and do that in a, in a shared decision-making discussion with the patient sure. about and then monitor it and see see what's going on see if things are improving awesome dr mike i really appreciate you breaking down uh the hope trial for us <laughs> All right, guys, that was a great episode, Dr. Mike. Yeah, thanks for joining us for episode four. We hope that you enjoyed what we brought you in this episode. Thanks for all of your hustle. And follow us on social media. What's at, your new handle? I, yeah, we both have new handles, interestingly. So I'm at Dr. Z Sickle Cell. And I'm at Imagineer. Awesome. Make sure you follow us. Make sure you share this podcast with somebody who you think could learn about sickle cell disease and continue to live well with sickle cell.